Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University. I'm joined for this podcast by two of my colleagues at McGill, Dr. Victoria Dickinson and Dr. Anna Winterbottom. Dr. Dickinson is a professor of practice, rare books and special collections at McGill Library, and she's the principal investigator for the Gwillem Project. Her research centers on the history of natural history, and she benefits from the rich holdings of the Blacker Wood Natural History Collection at McGill. She is the former director of the McCord Museum in Montreal and of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection in Ontario. Dr. Winterbottom is a historian of science, medicine, and the environment. She works mainly on the period 1500 to 1800 CE, and her focus is on the countries around the Indian Ocean and European settlements in the region. She is currently research associate and project manager of the Gwillem Project. Anna was previously a British Academy Research Fellow at the Centre for World Environmental History at the University of Sussex and a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University. Regular listeners may know that this is Dr. Winterbottom's second visit to the Indian Ocean World podcast. Her first, recorded two years ago, discussed her research into the transnational history of Neme and Biopiracy discourses. If you have not done so already, I urge you all to go and check that out either on our Praising Risk website via Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. In this podcast, though, Drs. Dickinson and Winterbottom are here to discuss a project that I mentioned in both their introductions, the Gwillin Project, a remarkably granular snapshot of the world of, the, of an expatriate family in Madras between 1801 and 1808. This project is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and it centers around the unpublished correspondence and artwork of two sisters who lived in Madras, now Chennai, in India, at the beginning of the 19th century. Thank you both for joining us for this podcast. Um, first of all, I just want to hand over the floor to you, basically. Um, could you introduce the Gwillem Project? Um, what sparked your interest in the two sisters, Elizabeth Gwillem and Mary Simons? Uh, what were your aims for the project? And how has this project as a whole developed over time? Well, I'll, I'll take that question, Philip. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, the Gwillem Project began really when I started working with the Blacker Wood Collection at McGill. So the Blacker Wood Collection was put together by Dr. Casey Wood starting in the 1920s. So it's an extremely rich collection. And he was interested in books of natural history, um, serials, uh, but also in manuscripts and in uh, works of art. So when I came to look at the natural history collection in the Gwillem, uh, in the uh, Blacker Wood, I found a, a really wonderful set of watercolor paintings of birds, some of flowers and some of fish. And they were attributed by Casey Wood to Elizabeth Gwillem. So um, I started to look at these and I realized in looking at them, these were exceptionally um well-executed portraits of birds. And they were early because Elizabeth Gwillem was living in India between 1801 and 1807 when she died actually in Madras. And so this sparked my interest certainly in looking more into this particular collection because this is quite an early period to have these kind of documentation of the natural history of India. And so I started to look at Elizabeth Gwillem and I started to explore a little bit more about how the collection was acquired by McGill and then what we knew about it. As I worked on the collection and I discovered in the correspondence, the administrative correspondence around it, that other people had been interested in these pictures too. One person, Dr. Subu Subramanya, who was um, a visiting fellow at McGill in the 1990s, and also Dr. Jeffrey Spear from New York University. And as I looked into their interest, um, Dr. Spear um, had, in fact, uh, provided funds to digitize these, these uh, wonderful watercolors. There are about 121 within the uh, Blackerwood collection. I looked at these with and, and, and decided I would contact Dr. Spear, which I did. He was delighted to hear from me. And he said, well, have you looked at the letters? And I said, what letters? Jeffrey Spear had been in touch with other people interested in the Gwillem uh, watercolors. And he had found the letters of Elizabeth Gwillem and her sister, Mary Simons, in the British Library, in the Indian um in, in the Indian and Asian uh, department. So 
this brought us the correspondence. So suddenly we have the images held at McGill of birds, fish, and flowers. We have the correspondence. In looking at the correspondence, I also discovered researchers who were interested in this correspondence, and that led me to the South Asia Museum in Norwich and to Ben Cartwright, the curator there, who introduced me to the Madras, what's called the Madras Album, which was acquired in the early um, 2000s by the South Asian Museum and is attributed to Mary Simons. So suddenly we started to have a collection of watercolors, around 200 watercolors. Mary Simons were mainly, mainly landscapes and portraits, natural history watercolors, and wonderful correspondence. There are four large volumes of correspondence in the British Library. None of these have been published with a, a small exception of an article by Casey Wood and one by Subra Subramania. But it sort of said to me, okay, well, let's look at this. We have this massive material, which gives us both text and image. And we have these two women who are not known, not written about. And I was particularly interested in understanding what these two women were doing in India, what they were um, hoping to accomplish, and to sort of excavate their history as women living in India and working in natural history of the period. So that was a kind of the beginning of my interest, these collections of material culture, the, the text, and then asking myself, can we excavate their history? So I applied for a social science and humanities research project uh, development grant, uh, partnership development grant, which was successful. And that brought together the researchers who I had come to know through looking at these collections, including Jeffrey Spears, Subha Subramania, Ben Cartwright. And I was introduced to Anna Winterbottom, who was working at that time in the uh, IOWC and who came into the project as well. And so we developed a partnership grant that um, brought together an international network of people interested in this particular project in this period uh, and in these women and their work. And the project has developed amazingly over time. And maybe we can talk about that a bit more. I don't want to, um, I think Anna should have a chance to leap in as well. But the development of the project has led us to grow the network. We started out to be about a dozen people to over 50 people in India, in Great Britain, in um, Canada, and in the US. And it has reached out to a global audience using um, partially due to COVID, but partially to a better understanding of the technologies of presentation through Zoom webinars, through uh, online platforms, through a web platform. We've been able to reach out to a, a much larger audience than we ever anticipated. Literally thousands of people who have looked at our, pod, our, our um, YouTube videos uh, on the Gwilym Project. So a project that kind of went beyond my wildest expectations of sort of uh, looking at this material developing into an international network, which will result in a upcoming publication as well as new projects, which we can talk about later. But I don't want to take too much more time on the project now. And perhaps Anna would like to add something. Um, no, I just like to add that, um, well, I've really enjoyed working with the project as well. My background is on the East India Company and the making of knowledge in the East India Company settlements. Um, I'd worked on Madras about 100 years earlier than the sisters were there. I looked at the correspondence of two surgeons working in Madras at the end of the 17th century. So it was great to kind of come back to, these, to the same place um, a century later and look at this mass of materials, um, which really kind of gave us a window into the, the social, cultural and uh, environmental uh, life of, of Madras at that time. And it's also been really great working with the network. So we have um, people really from a lot of different disciplines. We have art historians, we have ornithologists, um, we have an architectural historian, and we've also worked with people like, um, you know, uh, uh, food designers from Chennai who are really interested in what the letters can tell us about the, um, the kind of culinary landscapes of of Chennai in the 19th century. So it's been great working with the network and we've also really benefited from our RAs and their work. Um, 
we've had RAs from history, from art history, um, people from cultural geography, and they've, they've also come up with a lot of uh, insights which have really inspired us. I should just add one more thing, and that is the correspondence is amazing. There's over 700 pages, and I used to read it and think I was, it was like reading Jane Austen. It's a very personal correspondence between Elizabeth and Mary and their friends and family, mainly their other sister, um, Hester or Hetty in London, and their mother, Esther, in in Norwich. And so this wonderfully personal correspondence, I felt like I was in that world of Jane Austen. It was an absolute pleasure to read and to become acquainted um, with these two women and their worlds. And I think this notion of bringing women's voices to the surface was also very, very important, certainly when we started this project and continues to be important. I think there's not enough, um, there's not enough, there are many examples of women working in natural history, women writing about the environment, women writing about culture, but very little of it comes to the surface and is uh, broadly distributed and shared. Right. And there are so many ways you could, uh, so many questions I have that I want to ask you about this project. And I, before I do, though, I want to congratulate you on the webinars as well, because they drew me in as well. Uh, and they really are a fantastic resource. And I encourage um, listeners now, I mean, if you haven't seen them yet, please do follow them up and there will be a link in the description. Um, but the, so let's, I'll, pick, I'll ask you a question about the, the thing you most recently uh, talked about, um, Victoria. The, on more about the correspondence, a bit more about the correspondence. Um, and I think one of the really important features of the sisters' correspondence is that they're by two women. And I wondered how does this, how does a gendered understanding of the archive um, provide further insight into the, I suppose, the climatic uh, or I suppose natural histories actually of Madras um, that the Gwilym Project focuses on? Uh, these were not the first women to be involved in natural history, and there have been women um, natural history illustrators and writers before this. But I think that um, our particular access to both the images and the letters gave us a real appreciation of, in fact, uh, this gendered understanding. And Anna has thought a lot about this, and I'll turn that over to her. Um, well, I think the first thing to say is that um, in terms of their work as natural historians, the sisters actually had similar aims to some of their male contemporaries. So um, like um, male botanists and natural historians, they wanted to be credited in the, in the scientific literature for, for example, having discovered uh, a new species or having introduced plants to Britain. And Elizabeth Gwillem did do this. She sent a series of seeds and plants back to a nursery in uh, London. And um, so, and some of those uh, introductions were recorded in the Curtis's Botanical Magazine, which was a popular publication among people interested in natural history. So in that sense, the, they were actually fairly similar to their male contemporaries. But I think one thing that women tended to do was to use a range of different approaches to documenting their surroundings. So as well as, as Victoria already said, as well as the natural historical drawings, uh, we also have these landscapes, these portraits, and these very in-depth um, letters which describe the landscape. And I think for us as uh, historians, that's actually what we're more interested in, right? So we're interested in people's interaction with the environment. So how people experience the climate, there's a lot about that in the letters. So their personal experience of living in a very uh, hot climate and how they adjusted their dress, for example. Um, and they also talk about, um, so uh, local, uh, uses of, of plants, so how plants are used in food and how they themselves adapted local plants into their gardens and into their cuisine. So I think in, in that way, the fact that they were women and they weren't um, professionals kind of gave them a wider scope uh, to document their surroundings. And in that way, uh, these materials are perhaps more useful for us as historians um, than uh, kind of more formal um, natural or botanical literature, which kind of has these, these local details sometimes get filtered out, I think. And is that a feature as well of the 
the visual aspect of the archives, all the watercolors. Um, I suppose, do they, in what ways do the, the watercolors specifically help to illuminate um, the environmental and natural histories that the sisters wrote about, uh, but also depicted as well? I'll just mention before I talk a bit more about the watercolors is that Elizabeth was referred to by, by John Sims, Dr. Sims, at the Botanical Magazine as the first lady of science in the presidency, which is rather an interesting reference. Um, she obviously, her her correspondence, we don't have, unfortunately, we have this wonderful family correspondence, which um, Anna has talked about, this, this rich correspondence, but we don't have any of their more scientific correspondence. We have no idea what letters she might have written to Sims, what she might have written to Rottler, what she might have written to the nurserymen in London. So maybe that will show up. But like a lot of um, like a lot of things that women have um, often cr um, created or written, they they tend to be they they're not perhaps um, privileged in, in the preservation as often as they should be. In terms of and, and that's why we're fortunate to have the watercolors. Casey Wood uh, was looking for anything of natural history interest, and he went into this bookshop and he said, do you have any paintings of birds or anything else? And the the clerk in the bookshop in, in London said, oh, I think there's something in the basement. And he went down and came back with his enormous portfolio and brought it up dusty, and they dusted it off, and Wood opened it, and he said, oh, my God, look at this stuff. These are amazing, because they're... The watercolors are large scale. So Elizabeth Willem, like um, professional bird artists of the period, painted birds to size, so size of life. That was really important at this period because from the sort of the, uh, well, really the earlier 18th century on, there was this movement to use images as the um, simulacrum of the of the specimen, because specimens were hard to preserve. I mean, obviously, you can have skins, you can have skeletons. But in India in particular, Elizabeth talks about this, you know, the skins decay quite quickly. It's a real challenge to ship them back to England. Uh, preserve she has no one to skin her birds but the cook. Um, and she says he doesn't do the most perfect job. The skins are very fragile. Um, and getting a bird and sending it back to England or an animal and sending it back was a lot of work. So more and more, these images painted to a standard of um, natural history depiction, which was evolving during the 18th century, uh, allowed people like Linnaeus, for example, to um, to create taxonomic descriptions of species. So Linnaeus was using George Edwards' watercolors and his illustrations. Edwards was a well-known um, a natural history illustrator of the mid 18th century. And so these were being used then um, as, as stand-ins, if you will, for the, for the specimen or for the living creature. So Elizabeth was painting her, uh, her birds at life size, which means she used all different sorts of paper. She used Bristol paper, Bristol board, we would call it, um, in smaller scale for smaller birds, for some of the passerine birds, you know, that she would see. She was using very large what we would call double elephant folio size paper from Watman, uh, which was a British paper mill for the larger scale birds. And this is quite remarkable because um, she had to bring this paper out with her from England or have it sent. And I, I have been postulating that this huge portfolio was actually the portfolio they took with them on the ship because you have to imagine the voyage is six months they have to take everything they think they'll need I think Elizabeth packed her paper she had a project in mind so she packed this double elephant folio paper and she used and there's a lot of um, discussion in the sisters letters about how you know they have problems getting paper or brushes or inks or or colors and they're getting them sent back but they're also trying local materials and they're not serving as well so then they competed for who would get the paper because Mary was doing her wonderful portraits and watercolors of uh, landscape, which are on a smaller scale. So um, these bird uh, paintings that Elizabeth did, she used living specimens. And this is the other thing that distinguishes her from many of the bird artists of the period. She was able, and uh, we can talk a bit more about this, but she was able to enlist local um, assistants to capture birds, to care for birds, and to pose birds in her garden so she could paint the birds from life. And that is important. Few birds were painted from life. Um, often when you hear after nature in the 18th century, it means they're painting from a skin or specimen, not necessarily from a living species. 
And the big thing is you get the characteristic attitude of the species. And this is something she captures. She captures the posture of the species. More than that, she was able, she was uh, uh, had a gift for painting feathering. And this is really important because the feathering of the bird, the color of the bird was is distinguishing. And she was at a real gift for feathering. So Terry Short, who did an exhibition of her work in the 1980s in Toronto at the Royal Ontario Museum, suggested that she um, was, was the best at, at this um, particular depiction he had ever seen. And he compared, Short compared her to Audubon. And this is interesting because we know about Audubon. Everybody knows about Audubon, the elephant folios, how exciting they all are. Certainly, um, Gwillem's paintings would rival Audubon's. She obviously didn't have the opportunity to publish them as he did. But if you, um, he was painting from mainly, he would observe birds and then he would shoot the birds and pose the dead specimens. She was able to paint from living birds. So this this is a wonderful um, collection of the living birds of Madras of the period. The other thing she did that was very interesting and is related to her sister's work is uh, she was inspired by Thomas Buick. And Buick was famous for his wood engravings, not just of birds, but his end pieces, his tail pieces of little scenes of country life. And this is what people remember him for. Elizabeth painted the country life of the Madras area in the backgrounds to her birds. So we have not only a painting of a bird, we often have this remarkable depiction of the environment in which we find the bird or the environment of India. Sometimes she posed her birds in atypical environments for the species, but nevertheless, she painted wetlands, she painted um, river, riverine, uh, the banks of rivers, she painted uh, birds in the garden, she painted um, people going about their daily task. There's a wonderful, she paints a wonderful Malay cock, which is just a, basically a rooster. Okay. But these were, it's called a Malay cock. And in the background to the Malay cock are the stables of her house with, you know, the stable, the people working in the stables, the carriages in great detail. So that we have this kind of bringing the human environment and the natural environment together with the species. And this is quite remarkable. And it, it harks back to Buick. Very few artists of the period were doing this. In fact, almost none. Audubon does do it. He is, of course, a bit later as well. Um, I think, you know, her her she's also interesting because I looked closely, and this is where I think it really behooves historians and people studying works on paper to look at the originals. It's wonderful to have digital examples to share, and it's made our network possible. We've been able to share everything digitally in high resolution. But when you go back and you look, I started to realize as I was looking at some of the watercolors, they had writing on them in pencil. And the writing was almost erased on the, on the recto, the front of the painting, and sometimes on the back of the painting. So not only were the identifications she wrote in, she wrote generic identifications in ink on the back and numbered everything, but I started to see these notes and they were notes about the size of the bird, the coloring of the soft parts, which would be the beak, uh, the flesh around the beak, the eyes, the feet, which fade in preserved specimens. And they're often not right in earlier watercolors. So she gets them right because she notes what color they are. And so these were almost half erased. Some of them were actually cut off. And I realized this was a, another interesting, you know, I I hope I'm not uh, extrapolating too much from this, but I think when her works were framed at some point for show, perhaps in the family home or shown to people, they were half erased, these inscriptions. And some of them were cut off when the image was matted or framed in the past. So I think, you know, this this tendency to treat women's natural history illustration as decorative as opposed to informative, was 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 you know quite strong for many people. This was these were just decorative paintings of birds. Um, Casey Wood thought perhaps that the botanical paintings that Mary and Elizabeth both did might have ended up on fire screens. Apparently, they were used as a kind of wallpaper on fire screens, um, and they may not have survived. Mary also painted a whole series of fish paintings, which are equally wonderful, and some have inscriptions in um, Tamil written in Urdu, um, and it would indicate copying by a local artist. Mary's paintings, and I'll finish quickly with this, but the Madras album is remarkable. 
Um, many of the male artists who come to India at this period, they're painting, you know, houses, they're painting uh, public buildings, they're painting military installations. A lot of them are trained um, in military schools or trained in, you know, these um, schools of topography. Um, they're um, some of them are using camera obscura, so they get the sort of details right. Mary is painting these wonderful views of women sitting by a water tank, of uh, families gossiping on the veranda of a house, of people in the temple, of a family, you know, um, camping by the side of the road and cooking something. Uh, these lovely interactions of people um, just that take her fancy, and she... She sketches them with a great deal of skill. She did have some kind of training as a miniature painter in uh, England before she came to India. So her portraits as well, and she does a number of portraits, um, have this incredible detail. There's a particular portrait of a lady's maid, which we think may have been Elizabeth's lady's maid, Papa, whose story is in the letters. There's a story of Papa in the, in the correspondence, her biography. If you look closely at it, you can see the details of her jewelry, the details of the embroidery on the cloth, um, on the sari she's wearing. And our, our textile historians we work with have said it's unusual to find this kind of detail that really allows, it's not just a, a line of red, you know, a sort of vague line of red. It shows the pattern of the embroidery on the sari. So I think this was the kind of thing that they both had this wonderful eye for detail and this... Um, I would say a curiosity about the world that allowed them to capture, um, you know, uh, not idealize scenes as much, though there is a little bit of that romantic view, but really to capture what they see in front of them. And that's particularly the case with, of course, the natural history specimens. It's absolutely fascinating. So one of the things I want to pick up from this, um, and I think um, this actually speaks to your research as, as well, Anna, um, I suppose it's, it's kind of a two-part question. Um, about colonial knowledge making. Um, just the fact that they are rely that, that they're painting live specimens, for example, and they're reliant on um, local bird catchers uh, and local markets as well, um, implies kind of and, and at the same time they're painting things in the background as well. They're not just painting, as you say, not just the kind of idealized specimen, but everything going on in the background, the whole trying to capture the whole. Um, the whole scene. And I wondered, and this is a very broad question, um, what do um, the sisters' materials written or photo or, or, or written or um, captured in watercolor, and um, what do they say about, the, I suppose, the nature of the British or the East India Company's presence in um, Madras in the early 19th century? And I suppose the kind of, the kind of flip side of that question is, and this is the second part, is what tensions were there between, I suppose, what you might call hybrid knowledges, and I know that taps into your research, um, Anna, and that's kind of why I mentioned you at the beginning. Um, what tensions were there between these hybrid knowledges and, I suppose, the British's increasingly racialized um, preconceptions about uh, India and Indians um, from around this time? Um, so I'll just talk a bit about the politics of uh, Badras and, and the East India Company in this period, if I can. Um, so William Dalrymple, in his recent book, The Anarchy, really sees 1803 as a turning point in terms of company rules. So at that point, victories in the Anglo-Maratha Wars um, meant that the East India Company really established itself as the uh, dominant power in, in India. Um, at the same time, at this point, there was a struggle between the British Crown and the East India Company. And the story of these sisters, Elizabeth and Mary, is kind of tied up with that. So the reason that they came to India was because um, Henry Gwilym, Elizabeth's husband, was appointed as a Supreme Court judge in Madras. And now the Supreme Court was uh, the British government trying to exert its authority over over justice in the East India Company settlements. So um, the Supreme Court was trying to uphold um, English law at the same time as the East India Company was arguing uh, quite explicitly for despotic power in India. Um, and so Henry Gwilym actually became involved in this conflict um, and he was eventually dismissed. He returned to um, England in 1807 
after uh, denouncing the East India Company as, as despotic. Um, so Elizabeth and Mary were quite well aware of the kind of violent underpinnings of East India, East India Company rule. And um, actually one of the first paintings that Mary made was of the tomb of a local ruler, um, the heir to the Nawab of Okod, uh, the former rulers of the Carnatic in India. Um, and so this heir had been deposed and murdered by the East India Company. And his uh, tomb had become a focus for local Muslim worship. So um, Mary and Elizabeth were aware of this. They were quite um, opposed to um, aspects of the East India Company rule. Um, I won't say that they were anti-colonialism because um, I would say that they supported a kind of liberal form of colonial rule. I think that they also saw natural history as a kind of escape from this. So they saw um, the community of European uh, surgeons and naturalists and uh, missionaries that they became involved with as um, a kind of alternative society. And I think many of those who did study botany and medicine had altruistic aims in mind. So the uh, Calcutta Botanical Gardens, which was begun around this time, one of the aims was to find um, foods which were resistant to drought. So to, to help um, people in times of famine. But of course, um, knowledge making was also entangled with the East India Company's ability to rule in the subcontinent. So surveys um, and many of the Gwilym's associates were involved in statistical surveys, which were being done by uh, Colin Mackenzie and Francis Buchanan in this period. And those surveys were really uh, connected with the East India Company's ability to raise taxes. And those taxes were extremely exploitative and they eroded uh, rural uh, livelihoods in India. And the same thing for kind of um, investigations into botany. A lot of those were directed at finding profitable commodities for the East India Company. And in the same way, a kind of proto-ethnographic investigations into law and religion uh, could be used as tools of oppression, and they certainly were. So I think um, one of these things, uh, coming to hybridity, which you asked about, I think one of the uh, paradoxical things about these projects were that they were, they were designed to help the British know India better. So they were meant to reduce the earlier dependence on local intermediaries. At the same time, they were heavily, heavily reliant on local knowledge. And that is true for the official uh, surveys that I mentioned. Um, they, they were reliant on local people to, to make and use instruments to inform them about the number of people who lived locally, uh, local products, local customs, and so on. And it's also true for um, amateurs like Elizabeth and Mary. So uh, we've already talked about the bird catchers who were essential to Elizabeth's ability to produce such realistic bird paintings. We also know that they used a network of people to help them in their botanical work. So um, they used plant collectors and they talked to local doctors to get local uh, uses for the plants they collected. And they also um, talked about uh, local names. So they, they had um, interpreters who worked as part of the household. And those people would have been involved with um, telling them all the different local names. Um, so like their Orientalist uh, contemporaries, people like William Jones, uh, the sisters thought that local names were very important to, to collect and to, to be aware of. So this kind of um, proto-ethnographic collection of knowledge that I'm talking about coexisted with the collection of natural historical knowledge. They were really intertwined. So, so for the sisters and for um, their male contemporaries, this hybrid knowledge was very important, but I think, um, and I think hybridity doesn't go away after this period. Hybridity continues to be important into the 19th century and beyond. Um, and Bruno Latour talks about that. He, he actually says that hybridity is the defining um, characteristic of modernity. And if you think about this in terms of science, um, science is always local. 
So it's always local as well as global. It's always um, conditioned. It's always informed by local customs, by local practices, um, by things as basic as you know who's working in a in a lab, where the instruments are made, um, what the weather is like outside, things like that. So, um, but I think that as the nineteenth century goes on, that gets obscured by um, the compilation of knowledge. So scientific knowledge is increasingly presented in a way which which divorces it from its local uh, from its hybrid orange origins. I, w- I was just going to mention something too, Anna, that the Gwilym household was typical in the sense that um, they were very involved in learning local languages as well. Yeah. Elizabeth herself studied Telugu, and as she wrote, her mother became proficient enough to write a letter in it. She felt she had to learn Telugu because she could never get answers to her questions. And her questions were mainly about plants, animals, birds. And so she did speak Telugu. She also translated um, one of the Stella um, Puranas of the local temple, which had been written in Telugu. They were normally in Sanskrit, but they were, it was the story of the, the founding of the temple, the mythology around the local temple. And it had been, there was a Telugu copy and she translated that and sent that back to England um, to her friend, Mary York, who was the Bishop of Eli's wife. And unfortunately that um, that translation has been lost. It um, like some of the sisters correspondence that was lost in shipwreck. And some of their correspondence was actually captured by the French as well and not released till months later. So. There were perils of communication at this period, so this um, there the the exchanges that went on locally were very very important because the exchanges with Europe were at six month remove, and and uncertain. But I think you know Henry was learning. Um, I believe Henry was learning one of the local languages, Sir Henry, and also Richard Clark, his clerk, was learning. Um, other local languages, and he eventually became secretary of the Asiatic Society in London. So there was a real interest in learning, um, learning to be able to communicate with local expertise. And I think that's that, that was to me that struck me as being quite interesting. He was learning Persian because at this point, um, a lot of the business of government was still um, taking place in Persian. You know, the East India Company was really a successor in some ways to the Mughal state. Um, and so at this point, it was really essential that, that their servants did learn local languages. Anna, I just want to follow up on, on something that you said about how the, the hybrid knowledge is, or, or, or the scientific knowledge becomes divorced from its um, hybrid origins, I suppose. Um, and uh, I suppose, I suppose um, how does that um, tie into race, I suppose? Um, so I think these letters also come at an interesting point in um, in the history of race, because um, it's really at the turn of the 19th century that Europeans begin to think of themselves as sort of really bodily different from other people in other parts of the world. Before that period, there's really an idea that that um, racial characteristics are determined by climate. And so if you move to a different climate, your body will adapt. And we get some sense of this in the correspondence. So um, Mary, for example, talks about becoming seasoned to the climate. And this is a process where you'd normally become sick, actually. So you become sick, but then your body would adapt and you'd be able to live in a different climate. Um, And part of this was also um, that you would adopt local practices. So in a different climate, it makes sense to eat differently and to dress differently and so on. Um, Increasingly over the course of the 19th century, the British began to resist that. So they began to insist on bodily difference and mark themselves out with a different way of eating and a different way of dressing. And we also see hints of that coming change in the correspondence. So. Um, Elizabeth, for example, in one passage, she says, doctors begin to find that uh, Europeans require less spice um, because we have wine instead, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but it's it's also about this, um, you know, th- these hardening racial boundaries. 
Um, at this point, the English community in um, Madras is still very much, very fluid and very mixed in a way. So um, a lot of the East India Company servants would have, would marry locally. And um, again, the attitude that we find from the sisters towards um, this community is, is mixed. So in some passages, uh, Mary makes very derogatory comments about people of mixed background and um, that we would find very offensive today. Um, and I think this is this is one of the problems that came up from it for us actually that, that you know some of the language in this correspondence we, we would find racist today, but it, it's you know it's interesting to interrogate from a historical standpoint because of these shifting attitudes at the time. Um, on the other hand, Elizabeth writes about one of her closest friends who was the mixed race daughter of uh, James Anderson, a Scottish surgeon. And because um, this daughter was was educated in Britain, uh, she she accepts her as a social equal. So the, there, there are these contradictory attitudes, which I think are very useful in, you know, interrogating the change that's happening at this point. Thanks very much. Uh, you've given us a wonderful snapshot into how this project has come together and how it's developed over time and the broader issues that it addresses in terms of um, gender, natural history and colonial knowledge, um, and also the methodology behind all of this, incorporating correspondence and watercolours. I uh, really thank you for doing that. There's, I know there's a wealth of other materials and I would love to hear but more, more about them. And I urge um, listeners to, well, to start off by uh, following, going to the Grillen website and also to looking at the webinars. But for now, I think I'm just going to um, ask you kind of a final question. Um, what's next for the Gwilym Project uh, and its members? Um, I know that there's an edited volume in the works with McGill Queen's University Press. When can we expect it? Do we know? Uh, and uh, how does it tie the project together? Uh, and is there more to come in related? Is there more to come related to the sisters and their works in the future? or related to the natural history of the East India Company world or of Southern Asia? So uh, the Gwilym Project by, um, certainly for us, has been a, a, a success in that it did establish, one of its goals was to establish an international network, and it did that, um, and that has been one of the richest uh, accomplishments of this project. So uh, we've been keeping in touch with our members. We've published a newsletter every month and uh, that's gone out and people are still, in, we're still in correspondence with many of our members. The project is coming to a close. It was funded for three years. We have um, developed um, a number of resources and made them available online. So for example, we have cataloged all the McGill materials and place them in the McGill archive online. You can look at them online and under Gwillem uh, in the McGill archives. And we worked with our colleagues in India, and this was very exciting for me. I'm um, interested in the history of science, particularly the history of taxonomies. And so our colleagues in India actually worked on giving us contemporary scientific identifications of many of these, um, you know, almost all of them, of the birds, the fish, and the flowers. Also, Tamil names for these. So we've been incorporating this kind of information into the into the catalog, if you will, of the collection. And I think this is really important. This um, making making catalogs, archival materials, broadly available, and putting as much information as we can into that catalog. We also developed um, and shared materials with our uh, network on a website, and you mentioned already, but the GwillemProject.com. And I want to thank our students who made it possible to construct the website it's, um, and also to add case studies to it, to add information to it, more biographical information. We discovered a whole, I think this is interesting too, we discovered the whole biography of these two sisters, like their birth and death dates, when they married, their children. The fact that Elizabeth was childless was not, was is a sort of testament to the tragedies of the age. They lost all their children at early ages. Um, so there's these interesting, um, you know, information coming into that website. So there's the website, 
There is the archive. The Norwich, the South Asian Museum, has also made their collection of the Madras album available. These are all in high-resolution files for scholars. So that's exciting. We've also ha <clears throat> had access. We have an orphan works license for the correspondence of the British Library. And we've made we had all the correspondence transcribed. I thank our students again for that. Anne and I have been annotating it over the years, and that's available as well, so you can read these letters. So in sense of the future, the information is now there for other people to look at, go beyond our network, and use that material to ask their own questions of this, of this material from this period. The book is coming out, and thanks to Anna, who has been laboring hard and long on it, it will come out in 2023 with McGill Queen's University Press. It includes articles by members of the network, but also by some of our students, and includes a combination of um, <clears throat> longer articles and case studies. So the case study is this particular way of looking at, at, at um, one, one topic. Uh, I'll give you a good example, one of which is uh, one of our students looked at what Mary called her street theater. So Mary Simons painted these scenes. She was so impressed by the crowds on the street and the people comment on this. And English, British people or Europeans in India comment how crowded it is. So Mary wanted to give an impression to her readers back home of what that would like would look, look like. So she painted these kind of um, panoramas and then she um, had instructions on how to put them on pasteboard and stack them so that they would give the true impression of crowding on a street. So it was her street theater, and it's based on these Ida Fusicons, the panorama models, these paper theaters of the period. So one of our students has worked on that. It's a fascinating sort of deep, deep down dig into these um, uh, ephemera, really, of the period that rarely survive. So we have that, and we hope that will not be completely the end of the project, because we do hope people will take advantage of the materials available and go on with it. I know that some of the um, uh, museums we've worked with, including the Dakshina Chitra Museum in Chennai, has now connected with the South Asia Museum in Norwich, and I'm hoping that they'll do things together in a different kind of way. I think the other thing that came out of this, and I think very important for me, I'm not a historian of India. Um, I've mainly worked in the history of natural history in the Atlantic world, actually, um, was this understanding of um, what Anne and I have called hidden hands, uh, that the creation of knowledge, the creation of scientific knowledge, the creation of knowledge about the environment comes out of this um, conversation between people. So we see it in the, with the bird catchers. Elizabeth learns from the bird catchers. The bird catchers make her, her work possible. Her work gets placed into the scientific um, universe of publication and, um, you know, through the uh, botanical journal, but also is shared among people. So these this, this idea of India through its natural history comes back to Britain, but again, it's made possible by the people in India with whom she works. And so um, this has led us to a new project, which I'm pleased to announce we have funding for, which is um, called Hidden Hands in Colonial Natural History Collections. And we're again going back to material culture. I start, I'm a museum specialist. I started looking at things in museums a long time ago. So going back to four collections at McGill and interrogating these collections and looking for the hidden hands that made them possible. And uh, the collections that we're working with are, there are some in the blacker wood. Uh, one is a collection of uh, three uh, watercolor albums, 18th century watercolor albums painted by a French engineer while he was st stationed in Saint-Domingue, so modern day Haiti. And he, like Elizabeth, includes Creole names. Um, he includes brief descriptions to measurements, and he does these wonderful watercolors. So we're working on that. We're also working on a collection of olas that Anna has been working on. So these are palm leaf manuscripts. And we see in some of Mary's portraits as um, Brahmins holding palm leaf manuscripts. So these are the palm leaf manuscripts that are, again, Casey Wood collected and brought to McGill. So we have about 150 palm leaf manuscripts between the Oster Library and the Blacker Wood. And we're going to connect these with a Sri Lankan collection at the Red Path Museum. 
We're also looking, um, working, and Anna will be working on the James Forbes watercolors again at the Blacker Wood and connecting them with the diaries of James Forbes in Yale and other watercolors available with a collector in uh, Mumbai. And finally, closer to home a bit, we're working with Gloria Bell, an art historian, to look at a herbarium. Um, collection in the McGill Herbarium, um, managed by Frida Beauregard. And it is a collection by a European woman in uh, what was called Rupert's Land at the period, at the period, so the 1830s. And what we're doing is we're taking it back and connecting it with the um, Métis and Indigenous understanding of plants of the period, which is missing from the herbarium. So this uh, um, woman did not, in fact, uh, refer to Native knowledge. So we're bringing that knowledge back into this picture. So a lot of this um, bringing together this reconciliation, if you will, of different kinds of knowledge um, in and bringing it back to a much fuller and richer picture of the environment of natural history and the way people think about the natural world and their relationships with it. So that's hidden hands in colonial natural history collections and keep us busy for the next three years. It sounds absolutely wonderful. I can really see how it builds on the Gruland projects, just methodologically, just taking it to the next step and making it that much even bigger as well. It's uh, really exciting, as are all the materials um, that you've um, told us about, which, a lot of which are on the, the Gruland project website. All right. Thank you very much, both of you, for your answers and for discussing your fascinating project. And yeah, we've mentioned a few resources throughout this project. I'll make sure there's some links uh, on the uh, description so you can follow those easily. Um, I also want to thank um, Sam Gleave-Riemann, uh, who organized and produced this podcast. In fact, it's actually him who's going to put the link. So thank you, Sam, for doing that. Um, and thank you to you, the listener, for downloading or streaming this podcast wherever you are. Once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership of Praising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University. Next Wednesday on the podcast, we will be speaking to Dr. Manny Karnika Duda of Oxford University. The first speaker in the fall speaker series will be Professor Andrew Avaska at Concordia University on Wednesday, October 12th. Listeners in the Montreal area are cordially invited to attend and should contact the center for details.